Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Oh, this is so exciting. I'm relearning how to do uh, live radio, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm doing it right in front of you. Or if your back is turned, I'm doing it behind you. This It's a, an exciting week here at the Le Show Dome anyway. Because, uh, you know, we have to keep up with uh, the media trends. Good, bad, or indifferent. And so um, it's with goodness, badness, or indifference that I announce uh, that uh, starting today, you'll be able to receive Le Show Plus. That's right. In addition to the regular broadcast of this program or podcast of this program every week, Le Show Plus will offer you the opportunity to hear it considerably louder. So enjoy. Uh, this is a week that we've uh, had some echoes, echoes, echoes from the past, past, past. I don't think that effects package is really all it's cracked up to be. The, you, and it's a story you may have missed if you blinked. Happened at the beginning of the week. A airliner passing through Belarusian airspace, and what beautiful space that is in all fairness, was forced down. Uh, a uh, jet was from the Belarusian Air Force was scrambled. Well, correction. The Belarusian Air Force was scrambled, meaning one jet, to force this passenger plane down in uh, Minsk. Yes, it is the capital of Belarusia. You're right. Um, and a Belarusian journalist who was in exile and his girlfriend, who were flying not to Belarusia but uh, someplace else, were escorted by four suspicious-looking gentlemen off the plane. He was jailed, and he, uh, on Monday, made a an appearance on Belarusian television with bruises on his face which, according to the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, was, quote, not reassuring, unquote. The, um, the echo, echo, echo from the past, past, past in this particular story was that while uh, other observers referred to this incident as air piracy or terrorism, the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights referred to it, and this may be why this hasn't made as much news in the United States as it otherwise might have. He referred to it as Extraordinary Rendition. By night, he swings. This time the lady wears the pants. By day, he spies. Is your name <sighs> Mahmoud al-Mazri? Mohammed al-Madi. Uh, that's... Close enough. By night. Thank you. Thank you very much. This one by the great Jimmy Webb. Or by day. But, but I just run an off-track betting shop. Sure. I'm betting. You'll have a nice trip. He's got only one way. Extraordinary rendition. Sean Paul Farrell is Jack Limerick. Cheech Marin is the Arab. Limerick, you cannot leave me here. They, they torture the people here. They swear they don't. Somehow, I believe them. Uma Thurman is the handler. 
Jack, <laughs> I get so hot when you sing. Can I come back tomorrow night? Sure, Tiger. But just one thing. What's that? Don't let me buy your ticket. What? If I do, certain restrictions apply. This January, singing and kidnapping have a new name. Extraordinary rendition. Everything else is just ordinary. From Birthmark Pictures, only in theaters until it's not. Yes, those were good times. The Bush administration, the, the George W. Bush administration. An echo, echo, echo from the past, 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 past. Hello, welcome to Le Show Plus, and welcome to Le Show.
from New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome to this edition of Le Show and Le Show Plus. And now... Here's how smart this world is. The story comes from the tech section of the Hindustan Times. Thanks to the San Diego desk. Google executives and engineers were aware of how difficult it is for smartphone users to keep their location data private. This is according to newly unredacted documents in a lawsuit against Google. They're quoting Business Insider now. Google continued to collect location information even when users had turned off the location sharing settings. Yeah, that is smart. The documents further reveal the company made privacy settings more difficult for users to find. The company pressured original equipment manufacturers such as LG and others into hiding the location settings, citing popularity with users, according to documents. We're hiding it because it's popular. These are the now-will-be-evil people. The report, the, report, the report further reveals that the ex-VP of Google Maps acknowledged that the only way Google will not know a person's location is if the person deliberately sets their home and work addresses to a different location. Yeah, it's a game. You're playing a game with Google. It's fun. The documents further reveal Google, Google's intricate data collection methods, according to the report. Google uses different factors to collect location data, including Wi-Fi and even third-party applications not associated with Google. So there is no way to give a third-party app your location and not Google, one employee said, according to the documents, adding, this doesn't sound like something we would want on the front pages of the New York Times, unquote. The report further said that when Google tested different versions of Android operating system that made it easier for users to access privacy settings, user leveraged them to disable the data sharing. The users used them. This is the Hindustani Times I'm reading from. Google, however, deemed it as a problem that users were using it the easier access to privacy settings, and to fix it, Google chose to bury these within the settings menu. The the company also tried to convince smartphone companies to hide location settings through active misrepresentations and or concealment, suppression, or omission of facts. New unredacted documents are part of a lawsuit filed by the Arizona Attorney General, who you'd think has enough enough on his plate with the whole uh, recount thing, about which more later. But continuing with news of the smart world, just for a moment here, Tesla has been ordered by a Norwegian court. And those are, you know, Norwegian courts are like, they're pro-courts, to pay more than 30 customers, $16,000 each, you do the math, for slashing the battery life and charging abilities of older Tesla Model S vehicles with a software update. Yeah, it's kind of cute, a software update that makes your car work worse. Owners of Tesla Model S vehicles purchased between 2013 and 2015, lets me out, found that after they downloaded and installed the update in 2018, the electric batteries powering their cars 
ran out of juice faster than usual, and took longer to recharge. It's a service. It's screw up as a service. This is from the uh, British tech journal, The Register. Frustrated, frustrated by the change, more than 30 people in Norway filed an official complaint against Tesla to the Oslo Conciliation Board in last December. That panel, the lowest rung in the nation's judiciary for civil cases, has just found the American automaker American had indeed throttled the performance of customers' hardware, ordered the business to pay the complainants $16,300 each, according to Netavisen. That's a Norwegian news site. Tesla has till the end of the month. Time's a waste in Elon to uh, compensate its customers or file an appeal by June 17th. It's unclear what the manufacturer will choose to do. It didn't bother responding or sending a representative to take part in the case. It didn't show up in court. An estimated 10,000 Teslas in Norway may have been affected by the issue. The register asked Tesla for comment. And uh, it's not just Norway. Tesla has been sued over a similar issue in Denmark. What's with these Swedes? News of uh, the smart world. It is a, a smart, 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 ever smarter world. But um, also overseas now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. And this comes to us thanks to the Financial Times of London. You know, we have here in the United States a um, movement, I'd say. It's it's not always moving, but it's uh, been in action for a while here in New Orleans, whence this program is originating. Uh, the, the trend eventuated in the removal of uh, four statues saluting... Confederates, people who supported the uh, the whole uh, treasonous war against the uh, federal government. Oh, I'm sorry, the war of northern oppression. And um, and oh, across the country, there are, there are attempts to change the names of streets. It's going to happen here in New Orleans very soon, uh, named for slave owners or Confederates, and to remove. Uh, more statues. Well, in England, they have a similar problem, although they didn't have uh, a Confederate revolt. Uh, They had a little thing called colonialism. And one of Britain's most celebrated sculptors has proposed a novel solution to this argument. It's over the um, statue of Cecil Rhodes above an Oxford University college. If you're not familiar with Cecil Rhodes, you know, there used to be a place in Africa on the map called Rhodesia. Now it's Zimbabwe, but it was Rhodesia because Cecil Rhodes came there and said, this is mine now. I like this. This is mine. And, of course, also the Rhodes Scholarships when he was trying to uh, make nice with the world. The uh, Sir Anthony Gormley is the celib- Britain's most celebrated sculptor, one of them, and he suggests that the statue of Cecil Rhodes, which he created should be turned to face the wall in shame. He's also created a striking public art such as the Angel of the North, in case you've heard of that, which I haven't. He told Financial Times that giving Rhodes a pivot would help address, quote, collective amnesia, unquote, over such memorials while confronting the iniquities 
of the nation's imperial, not to say colonialist, past. Rhodes should remain in his niche, Gormley says, rejecting arguments for the removal of the statue from a facade at Oriel College, Oxford. Oriel College, Oxford! If we need to readdress our relationship to him, I would just simply turn him to face the wall rather than facing outwards. Adjusting his position would mark, quote, an acknowledgment of collective shame, but also reassert the fact that Oriel College and many institutions have property from Rhodes' riches, unquote Gormley. Statue has been the subject of a fraught six-year tussle between the anti-colonialist Rhodes Must Fall movement, a divided university, and cabinet ministers who have adamantly opposed removing such historic monuments. The college decided last week to retain the statue in place. Gormley described the moment the statue of slave trader Edward Colston was dunked and recovered from Bristol Harbor last year as a kind of baptism, but he remains wary of moving controversial memorials to museums. Public statuary, he says, becomes subject to collective amnesia extremely quickly. I don't think it is a bad thing to ask again, who are these people and why are they here? But by removing them, he says, you accept the amnesia. Rhodes not only founded Rhodesia, not amnesia, but Rhodesia, who's am? And the diamond company De Beers he, helped, he founded as well and devoted part of the fortune he amassed in Africa to support colleges at Oxford and to establish the scholarship. Facing street protests over the statue last year, the governing body of the college initially voted in favor of removing it, established an independent commission to explore the issues raised by his legacy and memorials. But after the report of the commission was completed, the college changed tack and decided to keep the monument in place. It cited the costs of securing planning permission to remove it, which would be lengthy and might be blocked by the Secretary of State for local government. The uh, other options explored by the commission included moving the statue indoors, a closet maybe, leaving the niche in place or commissioning new artwork to fill the space. But the creator of the statue says, turn it around. Face the wall, Cecil. Face the wall, Cecil. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen. And now it has come the time. The clock is ticking. It's less than two months away. It really is time for news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol III. The International Olympic Committee's insistence that sacrifices must be made to ensure the Games go ahead in Tokyo, regardless of the coronavirus situation in Japan, has sparked a backlash and more calls for the Games to be canceled. Vice President of the IOC, John Coates, drew criticism in Japan after saying the Games would proceed even if the host city was still under a state of emergency. The answer, he says, is... Absolutely, yes! He's overseeing preparations. Social media users accused uh, Coates and the IOC president, Thomas Bach, of ignoring Japanese public sentiment, which is overwhelmingly opposed to holding the games this year, according to The Guardian. 
Bach has been criticizing, no, he has been criticized for referring to the resilience of the Japanese people. He told a meeting of the International Hockey Federation, the athletes definitely can make their Olympic dreams come true. We have to make some sacrifices to make this possible. Wasn't clear to whom Bach was referring when he called for sacrifices. Many assumed he had the Japanese public in mind. Most national newspapers in Japan, which have invested in the games as official sponsors, have been reticent about the Olympics, but local newspapers were more outspoken. The Hokkaido Shimbun, also a sponsor, accused the Prime Minister of forfeiting his responsibility for people's lives and health. The Shinano Mainichi Shimbun said the games should be canceled. We're in no mood to celebrate an event filled with fear and anxiety, the newspaper said. The game should be canceled. The government must make the decision to protect the lives and livelihood of the people. International Committee member Dick Pound says the games will go ahead. The option of canceling the event is, quote, essentially off the table. But he stopped short of guaranteeing that it will still be completely safe. Quote, nobody can guarantee anything. I mean, let's be reasonable on that, unquote. Intense heat and high humidity could pose a serious threat to athletes. The report, published by the British Association for Sustainable Sport, details the concerns of leading athletes and scientists about the health impacts of soaring temperatures in Japan. According to the report, the average annual temperature in Tokyo has increased by more 2.5 degrees Celsius since 1900, more than three times as fast as the world's average. The Olympics are due to run during a time when Japan usually experiences its highest annual temperatures, soaring even higher in the warming climate. I think we're certainly approaching a danger zone, said Great, Great Britain rower and Olympic hopeful Melissa Wilson. It's a horrible moment when you see athletes cross the line, their bodies fling back in total exhaustion and then not rise up, she says. Some events at the upcoming Summer Games have already moved, been moved away from Tokyo amid concerns about heat. The triathlon, the mara marathon, tennis and rowing the report also provides advice to athletes on how to cope with competing in the heat. Olympic organizers must take the warning in this report seriously or face a real risk of competitors collapsing through heat exhaustion, says the report. The IOC didn't immediately respond to the report. Preparations undertaken so far by the IOC include uh, preparation so individuals can remain as cool as hydrated as possible and providing weather forecasts. Providing weather forecasts, ladies and gentlemen. That'll do her. And supplying information on how to mitigate heat risks. In recent years, Japan has seen record-breaking temperatures during the summer months as heat waves have become increasingly commonplace. The heat wave of 2018 resulted in more than 1,000 deaths. And that's without the Olympics. Scientists are warning, according to Axios.com, that canceling the games may be the safest option. That's according to a paper published this week in the New England Journal of Medicine. The country is in a state of emergency. 70,000 active cases, only 5% of the population vaccinated. The uh, 
Authors of the New England Journal of Medicine report said uh, the IOC guidelines involve a lack of involvement from national player associations and, quote, no plan B in the event of an outbreak, unquote. Players are not provided masks by the IOC and must bring their own. IOC provides insufficient detail on testing frequency and hotel isolation as well as limited contact tracing. There's no safety guidance on risk levels associated with outdoor and indoor sporting events or even on high-contact sports at the Olympics. Athletes have limited insurance coverage if they contract the COVID during their training and competition periods. Pfizer and BioNTech have offered to donate vaccine doses, but the shots don't serve as a guarantee that all athletes will be vaccinated in time or even choose to be vaccinated. The authors of the uh, report in the New England Journal of Medicine (laughs) request the World Health Organization form an emergency committee to advise a better risk management approach. So they'll be doing that. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has warned Americans against traveling to Japan because of the uh, emergency as COVID-19 cases rise. And that includes people who might have been hoping to soak up the atmosphere during the Olympics. The advisory won't keep U.S. athletes out of the Summer Games, reports CBS News, but it does increase the already tremendous pressure on the Olympics organizers. There are fears the Olympics could cause yet another surge in infections in the country, and with it, another state of emergency that would force schools to close. Kids, just watch the games. Tokyo-based political scientist Koichi Nakano said that's a real possibility if the games do go on. Quote, Nakano, it would possibly be a super spreader event. That's why, in part, why the U.S. State Department has warned Americans, quote, do not travel to Japan. And officials there are still considering whether they'll allow Japanese fans to attend the games. We might just have to do sound effects for the Olympics, but there'll be Olympic sound effects because it's a movement, and we all need one every day. school dance I would not strut nor prance and I seldom left my seat and no one was so kind to take the time to explain this simple truth to me 
Direct from the virtual trading floor of Corium Salgomalava, this is Mind Your Own Business. I'm Mike Tuccinello on the virtual trading floor. This week continued the year's up and down carnival ride with the so-called cryptocurrencies. And that adventure sparked rumors that an unnamed but notorious digital entrepreneur is getting ready to introduce yet another take on the digital currency trend that has so many slightly less than savvy investors entranced. Fresh from his own all-too-short romance with Bitcoin, this self-proclaimed monarch of the digital arts is planning the introduction of Flipcoin, a digital currency which deliberately accentuates its own volatility. According to reports, no more nor less reliable than the others, Flipcoin will be based on an algorithm which daily injects an engineered rally on the upside or plunge on the downside, just for the fun of it. But based on this entrepreneur's history of ambitious plans, the savvy investor may take greater profits by speculating on whether this one ever really happens. As politics grows ever more technological, the role of technology becomes more political. And as Sylvia Meal Argent at our Money Honey Desk reports, that trend is leading to a lucrative new startup niche. Sylvia? Thanks, Mike. Arizona's doing it. George is thinking about it. It is recounts on part or all of the state's vote in last year's presidential election. Other states with Republican governors are considering similar moves. And that gave serial startup starter Danny Glomar an idea. A big one. The team doing the uh, Arizona audit, uh, the Cyber Ninjas, was basically a startup with no experience in counting votes or any procedures involved in election integrity. I thought to myself... I can do that, and I can do it better. Figuring the demand for inexperienced election auditors would soon exceed the supply, Danny Glomar moved fast. And so far, he didn't break anything. First thing, we got Recount.com, which was super big. Two days after we swooped in, we were getting offers for the domain name in the mid-seven figures. I mean, epic, from the jump. Then we put in tentative bids in ten states with Republican governors. Just paper bids with nothing behind them. At the time, I was the company's only employee, but we put scale-up numbers in the bid, so we weren't trying to fool anybody. And third, we actually finally went out and hired some employees, bookkeepers, restaurant cashiers, lower-level blackjack dealers, you know, people with numerical literacy. Our internal slogan for recruitment was, if you can count, you can recount. Some of the states that received Glomar's bids said that was what made them consider private recounts in the first place. Talk about market development. And, according to Danny Glomar, his startup success has actually encouraged would-be competitors. Recount puppy, the masked recounters, recounts are us. It's like there's a new one every couple of days. But in a field where expertise or experience isn't really required, we think first-mover advantage is the key to survival. And even success. With the current political polarization, Danny Glomar sees the 2020 election is just the beginning. Which is why he's just invested in an actual office. From the Money Honey Desk, I'm Sylvia Mealargent. And for today, that's all from the trading floor. Till next time, I'm Mike Duccinello saying this week, mind the business of someone you love. So long. And now, News of the Godly. 
Nearly 50 years after a Massachusetts teenager was murdered, officials announced this week that a Catholic priest close to the family was responsible for the crime. On Friday, officials were obtaining arrest warrant for Richard Levine, Lavigne, the French spelling, L-A-V-I-G-N-E. Uh, but he died that evening in the hospital. According to Hampton District Attorney Anthony Guluni, not Giuliani, Guluni. That's it. That office said in a statement that he had died. Levine had some physical ailments, Guluni said at a news conference, and had not been well for a period of time. 13-year-old Daniel Croteau was found dead in the Connecticut River in Chicopee, Massachusetts. I just like to say Chicopee on April 15, 1972, wearing the clothes he'd worn to the local Catholic school a day earlier, according to the DA's office. Daniel and his four brothers served as, say it with me now, altar boys for Levine at St. Catherine of Siena in Springfield, Mass., the DA's office said. The priest also took Courteau and his brothers on outings, not innings, but outings without their parents. Multiple times the priest had invited Daniel and his brothers to stay at his parents' home in Chicopee a few times as well. Levine was defrocked by the Catholic Church more than 15 years ago because it had received numerous sexual complaints against him according to a spokesman for the diocese. Danny's parents told reporters they just wanted answers, Guluni, the DA, said in a statement. Based on the accumulation of historical evidence, the evidence gained in the last year and the admissions of Richard Levine, I believe we now have those answers, unquote. While formal justice may not have befallen Richard Levine here on the earth, we hope now to provide answers and some measure of closure to Danny's family, the uh, DA added. Closure. In March of 2020, Galuni's office turned fresh attention to the murder of Croteau, working with the Massachusetts State Police. They combed through thousands of documents, decades of evidence, and also zeroed in on a letter that Levine told investigators he'd received from the teen's murderer admitting guilt. That Levine, the priest, had received a letter from the murderer admitting guilt. The letter was unsigned. An expert in forensic linguistics examined the letter, March of this year, compared it with other letters written by Levine, the examination report this week said that the, quote, language patterns in the question document are consistent with language patterns in the known Levine documents to the point that Richard R. Levine cannot be excluded as a possible candidate of authorship, unquote. Meantime, investigators questioned the priest for about 11 hours over several days in uh, last month and this month, according to DA's office said. The defrocked priest refused to admit he killed Daniel, attempted to mislead and distract investigators, said the DA's office. But Levine also made statements that suggested he brought the youngster to the riverbank April 1972, had physically assaulted him, and returned a little later to discover the teen lying face down in the river. He did not notify police or the teen's parents at the time. But he gone now. He gone now. And Dateline Santiago, Chile, the Jesuit congregation of Chile, has acknowledged that its priests sexually abused 64 people, including 34 children, between 2005 and, this, and last year, according to a report from that uh, Catholic order obtained by Agence France Presse. That is, of course, the uh, news service 
of um, France, meaning its uh, reporters are uh, what could be fairly considered French. Ah, the French. Yeah, well, there it is. Eighteen. Uh, sorry, eleven Jesuit priests were found guilty following an internet. Uh, sorry, an in, in, internal investigation of abusive situations with a sexual connotation involving underage victims, according to the report by the Society of Jesus, known, of course, as the Jesuits. Of the perpetrators, quote, five have died, three are currently under strict professional supervision plans, and another three are no longer part of the Society of Jesus, said the uh, order. They said that since 2018, it's been providing authorities background to the abuse allegations. 31 of the victims have received financial compensation. Among those found guilty was Renato Poblete, the late former Jesuit leader, they die so conveniently, don't they, who allegedly abused four minors and and 19 adults over four decades from 1960. Well, with him it's a tradition. Poblete, who died 2010, spent almost 20 years as head of the Hogar de Cristo, the country's latest foundation for the homeless. He was first accused of abuse a couple years ago, after which the Jesuit congregation asked for forgiveness. The Chilean Catholic Church has been embroiled in sexual abuse scandals, according to Agence France Press, since 2010, when pedophile priest Fernando Caradima was first accused of molesting boys. A Vatican court found him guilty in 2011, and seven years later he was defrocked by the Pope. That's a long, slow defrocking. His case helped expose a culture of sexual abuse within the church in Chile. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. It is a copyrighted feature of this program. Now let's wash our heads out with this. The Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. Also from... Agence France Press. <laughs> this story, Rwandan President Paul Kagame says France's recent acknowledgement over its role in the 1994 genocide in its country is, quote, a big step, unquote, even if it didn't come with an apology. His counterpart, Emmanuel Macron, during a historic visit to the East African nation this week, recognized France's role in the killing of 800,000 mostly Tutsi Rwandans and said only the survivors could grant the gift of forgiveness. Stopping short of an apology, so it's an almost apology, and stressing France was not complicit in the actual violence, Macron went further than his predecessors in acknowledging that Paris backed the genocidal regime and ignored warnings of looming massacres. Some survivors had begun hoping for a formal atonement and were left disappointed, but Kagame, who left the Tutsi, led the Tutsi rebellion that ended the genocide, has regularly accused France of complicity. He applauded Macron for speaking the truth and said his words were, quote, more valuable than an apology. He expressed doubt about ever getting an entirely satisfactory answer, but said, we need to admit it, take it, and work towards other steps wherever and whenever they come. Kagami, somebody can still come and say, I'm sorry, I apologize, still I think some people will remain and say, that is not enough. 
France provided political and military support to Kigali during a civil war preceding the genocide. And long stood accused of turning a blind eye. Better than Noah at all, you might say, but you would be wrong. Dateline, North Ogden, Utah, the Weber School District is a college. Weber, I think, in Utah. Uh, it's Weber State University, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, after it appears a yearbook student or students went rogue and altered several photos, leaving some parents and students frustrated and upset. A, um, one of them, a ninth grader, said she couldn't help but notice something odd when she looked at her photo. One of my friends pointed out that there were masks covered over the people who didn't have them on, she said. There was a page with a group of kids in gym class over a couple of faces. It looks like a thick black spray tape paint type of line was drawn over their mouth and nose. Their masks are pulled down beneath their chin, she explained. One can see the kids' mouths and faces under the markings. The district said about a dozen photos appeared to have been edited. In some of the photos, it looks like more than one student or teacher has drawings on their faces. Some are drawn really well and some are drawn really bad, said uh, one of the mothers of the students, Becca Hare. I just don't see the need to alter children's faces and put on a fake mask. Harris said. The district said it thinks a well-meaning student did this on their own without any teachers or administrators realizing it when they looked at the proofs before printing. It wasn't caught, and that's kind of frustrating, said the mom. The district apologized. Fake news, fake this, fake that, fake masks. Connecticut Sun general manager, that is a WNBA team, I believe, and coach Kurt Miller has been fined $10,000 and will be suspended for one game after comment he made about Las Vegas Aces star Liz Cambage during last Sunday's game. Cambage posted a lengthy Instagram story after the game, said Miller tried to get a referee to call a foul in the Suns' favor by mentioning her weight. According to Cambage, Miller remarked to the referee something along the lines of, Come on, she's 300 pounds. In her Instagram post, Cambage corrected him, saying she's six foot eight. And 235 pounds, because she just weighed herself, so she can have all the facts. And that she's proud, very proud of being a big B, with some dashes after the B. Are they, are they wiping out that word now, too? I will never let a man disrespect me ever, 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 especially a little white one, Cambridge says, <laughs> saying later, don't ever try to disrespect me or another woman in the league. Miller issued a statement. The following Monday morning, that was last Monday, apologizing to Cambridge and the Aces organization. Quote, I made an inappropriate and offensive comment in reference to Liz Cambridge's height and weight. I regret what I said in the heat of the moment, and I want to sincerely apologize to Liz and the entire organization. I understand the gravity of my words and have learned from this. President of the Sun issued a statement for the team in no way do we condone or any behavior or speech that is disparaging towards another person. Curtis apologized for his mistake and understands the gravity of his words. She got that from him saying, I understand the gravity of my words. I hear the footsteps of a lawyer in the room. The CEO of the PGA, Professional Golfers Association of America, or Golf Association of America, apologized this week for the poor crowd control on the 18th hole of the ocean course. As eventual winner, Phil Mickelson, and Brooks Kepka tried to complete the final round of the PGA Championship. Both players were swarmed by boisterous spectators on Sunday at the course as Mickelson 
one. Kepke tied for second. Mickelson said it was unnerving, and Kepke was critical of the situation, said his injured right knee got dinged. He's attempted to make his way up the fairway. He didn't know golf is now a contact sport. The tournament originally announced that attendance would be capped at 10,000 spectators per day because of the COVID, but with restrictions being loosened across the country and South Carolina, the crowds were considerably larger throughout the event. Thousands of people lining both sides of the fairway at the 18th last week. PGA CEO Seth Waugh said, quote, We always put player safety at the top of our list, and a grateful order was restored. I've spoken to both players and apologized on behalf of the association. Unquote. I'd like to find the, the organization that doesn't put people's safety at the top of their list in their public statements. I'd like to see the list, though. John Cena, the professional wrestler and the star of F9, the latest installment in a movie franchise, seems to be popular with some people, including in China. He has apologized to fans in China after he referred to Taiwan as a country while giving a promotional interview. He joined a long list of celebrities and companies that profusely apologized after making an errant step through China's political minefields. According to the New York Times, Cena posted a video apology in Mandarin on a Chinese social network. The dude speaks Mandarin. Beijing considers Taiwan, in case you didn't know it, to be a breakaway province, claims it as part of its own national self. Referring to it as a country is often an offensive assertion in China where matters of sovereignty and territory are passionate issues driven by a strong sense of nationalism. Cena apologized for a statement he made in an interview with the Taiwanese broadcaster TVBS. In it, he told the reporter in Mandarin, Taiwan is the first country that can watch, meaning the film. I made a mistake, Cena said in his apology video in Mandarin. Now I have to say one thing, which is very, very, very important. I love and respect China and Chinese people. I'm very sorry for my mistakes. Sorry, sorry, I'm really sorry. You have to understand that I love and respect China and Chinese people. He has studied Mandarin for years. Regularly posts on the Chinese social network. Many of his fans over there were not quick to forgive. Quote, please say Taiwan is part of China in Chinese. Otherwise, we will not accept your apology, said one. Western companies and celebrities that do business in China often forced to walk a political tightrope to not offend Chinese sensibilities. And uh, companies like Apple do bend the knee. Dateline Toronto, when Benito Mussolini's Italy declared war on the Allies in 1940, then-Canadian Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King Enough names, babe. Ordered the internment of hundreds of Italian Canadians. Did you know that? Aren't you glad you're listening now to Le Show Plus? Overwhelmingly men, they were held in camps and made to wear uniforms with red piping down the sides and red dots on the back that resembled targets. They lost jobs, their families lost income. For some, the experience left scars that never healed. Now, Prime Minister Current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, only two names, formally apologized in Parliament this week for what he called an injustice. Quote, 
To the men and women who were taken to prisoner of war camps or jail without charge, people who are no longer with us, to hear this apology to the tens of thousands of innocent Italian Canadians who were labeled enemy alien to the children and grandchildren who have carried a past generation shame and hurt into their community, we are sorry, Trudeau said. It was welcomed by Italian-Canadian groups and descendants of internees. Some historians urged caution, warning that a blanket apology could whitewash the fascist pasts of some who were rounded up. Oh, let it be. Leave it alone. <laughs> they got interned. Or they were interns. I, don't, I, I forget which. The Philadelphia 76ers basketball team, a me- I should say a men's basketball team, has apologized after an in- investigation into the incident that occurred at last night's game, says a statement from the 76ers. We have determined that the person involved will have his season ticket membership revoked, effective immediately. In addition, he will be banned from all events at Wells Fargo Center indefinitely. I believe the fan spat on um, Washington Wizards guard Russell Westbrook as he was leaving the arena after a loss to the 76ers in the playoffs. Hey, that's the playoffs. Continuing the 76ers' statement, quote, we apologize to Russell, Russell Westbrook and the Washington Wizards for being subjected to this type of unacceptable and disrespectful behavior. There is no place for it in our sport or arena even if we're not playing a sport in our arena. And Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer apologized this week after she was seen in a photo with a dozen people at a bar. That violated her own order restricting indoor dining to no more than six people at a table. Quote, Yesterday I went with friends to a local restaurant. As more people arrived, the tables were pushed together, the governor explained. Because we were all vaccinated, we didn't stop to think about it. In retrospect, I should have thought about it. I am human. I made a mistake, and I apologize, unquote. Whitmer could be seen with at least a dozen diners at the Landshark Bar and Grill in East Lansing. That was in a photo posted on social media. The restaurant outing violated the state's May 15th order that restricted indoor dining to no more than six people at a table. Earlier this month, Whitmer came under fire after waiting weeks to disclose details about a private jet trip she took in March to visit her ailing father in Florida that was partly funded by Michigan Transition 2019, a nonprofit fund that was initially established for inauguration events. And in April, two of her top aides went south for spring break as residents were cautioned against traveling. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now before we wrap it up, just an item from the News of the Warm file, a new study by University of Liverpool Ecologists warns that heat-induced male infertility, is it hot in here or is it me, will see some species succumb to the effects of climate change earlier than thought. Currently, scientists are trying to predict where species will be lost due to climate change so they can plan conservation strategies, but research on temperature tolerance has generally focused on the temperatures that are lethal to organisms, not the temperatures at which organisms can no longer breed In Nature Climate Change, this study of 43 fruit fly species, Drosophila to you and me, showed that in almost half of the species, males became sterile 
at lower than lethal temperatures. Importantly, the worldwide distribution of these species could be predicted much more accurately by including the temperature at which they become sterile rather than just using their lethal temperature. So, for example, males in Drosophila lumae, they're sterile 4 degrees below their lethal limit. 4 degrees is the temperature difference between summer in northern England and the south of France. Says the lead researcher, our findings strongly suggest that where species can survive in nature is determined by the temperature at which males become sterile, not the lethal temperature. Unfortunately, we don't have any way to tell which which organisms are fertile up to their lethal temperature and which will be sterilized at cooler temperatures. So, So a lot of species may have a hidden vulnerability to high temperatures that has gone unnoticed, which will make conservation more difficult. Oh, to be a fruit fly in heat. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. That is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Come on now. Start the music. (laughs) There we go. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Back next week at the same time over these same stations. And whenever you want it. On your audio device of choice, I have to announce sort of unexpected development. The show plus is now merging back into the show, so they'll be identical. Won't be can't be any louder, it turns out. The email address for this program, your chance to get cars, I talk t-shirts, and playlist of the music you hear here, all available at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. 
Did I thank the San Diego Udes? I don't think I did. Did I thank Pam Halstead? I don't think so. Did I thank Thomas Walsh here at WWNO for help with today's program? I have now. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Sheriff. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. I just have to scratch. So long from New Orleans.